Good morning. Here we are. Good morning, Sebastian, right? Yeah, all right. Where's Mateo? Oh, okay. He's sleeping. Don't wake him up. No? Oh. Oh, very good. Okay, you guys got to be quiet, okay, because there's people that are sleeping in here. You might wake them up. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a bad joke. <laughs> all right. Anyways, very good. <clears throat> Open up your Bibles to... Uh, we're going we're gonna to start off in the book of uh, John, 1 John. We, we read last week, actually I want you to go to 1 John chapter 4, and I'm going to touch on what we talked about last week in Ch- Philippians chapter 3. So when you get to 1 John chapter 4, put your finger there, then go back to Philippians, because we are in the book of Philippians. And we're going to just take a little detour this morning because of something that we ran across last Sunday. <clears throat> and in, um, in Philippians chapter 3, once you get there, Paul tells us in verses 18 and 19, and uh, just so I can read it in context of what we're going through, he says, um, verses 18 and 19, starting in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with even, uh, tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is not the first time Paul warns us in this letter about watching out, keeping watch over those that are around us. As a matter of fact, in, uh, at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, right at the beginning of uh, Philippians chapter 1, he says in verse 4, uh, that uh, he says it is right, actually in v- verse 7, that he starts off with in chapter 1. It says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul was constantly having to defend the gospel, the confirmation of the gospel. Then he says in verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So Paul's desire, Paul's call, Paul's, from the very beginning of the book of Philippi, for the Philippines, he is talking to the people and sharing with them, I, I need you guys to really just get this message. I want you to be discerners of the Spirit. And I want you to, to see, because he says in verse chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And so there were people that were preaching Christ, but they were doing it to hurt Paul and to say, you don't have to follow him, follow us. We've got the message. As a matter of fact, we're cheaper than Paul. And one of the things that uh, most people didn't realize is Paul never charged for his messages. Paul never, Paul never asked for anything. And these guys were just kind of throwing it out there. You know, we know what we're talking about. Paul, he's in prison. You see him in prison? How can that be of God? He cannot be of God, so follow us. And Paul says to them, he says, you know, some indeed preach Christ from, uh, from envy and rivalry, but others from the goodwill. The latter do it out of love and knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, he says, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And so this is not the first time that Paul has talked about 
watching out, looking for, and uh, being careful of people that are enemies of the cross. This is not the first time that people have, uh, that, that anybody has ever said anything like this. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 13, it's, it's been stated in the Old Testament many times. Uh, Moses tells the people, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, uh, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, okay, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So there are people, there were people in the Old Testament that were able to do signs and wonders and they were able to perform miraculous deeds. And then they would say, okay, now Moses is leading you guys into the wilderness. He led you guys astray. Let's go worship this God. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened when Moses was gone for 40 days. He went up to Mount Sinai to get the tablets from God. Uh, not, not, your, uh, <clears throat> not your cell phones and tablets that you have at home. The tablets he got were downloaded from God himself, his finger on tablets of stone. And he got the Ten Commandments. And he was gone too long. And the people were saying to Aaron, Aaron, where is this Moses that is supposed to be leading us? He left us. We need to do something. And, Mo- and Aaron says, well, I don't know what to do. And and Moses and the people said to Aaron, well, make us a God. Make us something that we can look at and worship. And so he says, well, bring me all your jewelry. And they brought all the jewelry and they crafted this bull of gold. And, and they were hooping and hollering and they were yelling and praising this bull and thanking this God for the deliverance and, and bringing them thus far. Moses comes down the mountain and he sees what's going on. And he, he casts the stones on the ground and, and he says, what are you doing, Aaron? He says, well, the people wanted a God. So how'd you do this? Well, I don't know. I, I threw the gold into the fire and I'll pop this bull, he says. And so that's what we started worshiping and didn't kind of messed up everything else about the, the sincerity of knowing who God is. As a matter of fact, because of that, Sometime later, God sent down some, uh, he, he sent down some serpents to bite everyone and kill as many people as possible. He had the elders of the group to grab a sword and to slay as many people as possible. And God, in his right mind and in his right will, he should have destroyed the whole camp. But God said this, you see, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And I will show favor upon whom I show favor. I'll have compassion upon whom I will show compassion. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And what God did, he says, you know, there needs to be a lesson learned here. And it's always been that way. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, Moses even said, you know, if a person comes to you and says, thus says the Lord, and that doesn't happen, that guy is a false prophet. You don't just not listen to him anymore. What you need to do is you stone him. You cast him down and you kill him and take him out of the camp because he is infecting the people. Jesus himself, when he came and he spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and verse 16, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, you're supposed to have these verses up on the screen. I don't know what's going on here, but the screen should be showing these verses that I'm showing you so that you can at least see them, that I'm not just making this up. Or you can write these down for yourself. So if somebody's back there, if they can put the verses up, I'd really appreciate it. Please, thank you. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. I know, Paul says, and this is, this is very, very keen into what Paul is saying. In Acts chapter 20, Paul visits this little city called Miletus. And in Miletus, he's, he's there and he says, you know, call the elders from 
Ephesus. Have the elders come. I want to talk to them. I want to share with them what's going to happen. He says, I've got to go down to Jerusalem. And they cried. and They begged him, don't go, Paul. You're going to get imprisoned. You're going to be slaughtered. They're going to, they're going to kill you. And Paul says, I have to go. I have to go. But I, I need you to know something. Before I leave, people are going to come in. Or after I leave, he says, people are going to come in. And, and he says here in verse 20 of Acts chapter verse 20, 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul says, there are people that want to take advantage of you. And I've been trying to share this gospel with you. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, Paul says. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's talking to the church in Corinth. And he says, you know, I, I feel a divine jealousy for you. He says, you know, after all the labor that I've, I've labored and worked and, and, and I've I promoted Christ to you and Jesus Christ is crucified and, and buried and resurrected, the only Lord, I, I have this divine jealousy for you because I know that you're going in the right direction, but somehow you've steered. Corinth, if you know anything about the church in Corinth, was just a church that was in mayhem and they had all kinds of problems going on. One of the worst churches in the New Testament uh, that Paul wrote to. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. Basically, he's saying, you know, I prepared you. I made you holy. I, I had the word of God just, just preached over you and you were prepared for God. And now you are a pure virgin. The church of Christ is a pure virgin. And Paul had this jealousy, this, this you know, I, I want this church to be pure because that's how I presented you to God. Stop running after other gods. And he says, I betrothed you to one husband, which is Jesus Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. What Paul is saying, people are out there preaching a different gospel. They say, yeah, you need to be saved by grace. That's right. But you also have to have this. You have to have that spiritual gift. You have to do this so many, so many acts of, of kindness. You need to knock on so many doors. You need to do this. And every, all these other things. You need to pray so many prayers. There's, a, there's these things that you have to go through in order for your salvation to be complete. As if what Jesus Christ did on the cross wasn't enough. That's a different gospel, beloved. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8, he says, I, I can't believe that you are going after a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Anybody that preaches to you a different gospel, whether it be me, whether it be somebody else, whether it be an angel, he says, that person should be cursed to the fullest extent of the law. Because the only gospel that is coming out of God's word is the gospel of grace. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. That gospel of grace is not something that I can work for, not something that I can buy, not something that I can do in order to get it. Paul says it is only by the grace of God that you're saved. God gives it to you. You've got to receive it. You've got to just accept it and recognize that Jesus Christ died for you. You've got to understand that it's by no other means. It's not even by going to church, this church or that church or any church. That's not going to get you saved. God gives you his irresistible grace. And when it shows up, you cannot resist it. You say, yes, Lord. And the natural thing to do is to fall on your face and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
We recognize that we are sinners and we fall at the face uh, on our faces before God and say, Lord, have mercy upon me. What should I do? And the response is repent. Repent from your wicked ways. And we're all sinners. And we all stand at, at God's mercy and God's compassion and God's grace. And Paul says, if anybody comes to you, and, and when he says this to the people in Corinth, you know, I, I have this jealousy for you because you're being led astray. There's things that are going on that I, I don't even understand how it is that you're allowing it to happen. As a matter of fact, a little bit later, Paul says something to the effect, do you have that up there? 2 Corinthians 11, I think it's 14. <clears throat> I don't know if you have that as well. But anyways, what Paul says, you know, it, it's no wonder you are following these false apostles and these false prophets and these false teachers because didn't Satan even masquerade as an angel of light? And these false apostles and teachers and pastors that come in, they come in all flowery and all good and, and smell good and look good and, and, and they have this voice to be able to soothe you. And tell you, look, you can have this. You can have that. As a matter of fact, you can have all that it is that God is holding back from you. One of the, one of the examples that I used last week when I were talking about this and we weren't able to get into it was Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you, if you turn to Genesis chapter 3, you don't have to go there, but we did last week. If you turn to Genesis chapter 3, that is the fall of man. This is where Satan comes up and he deceives the woman. And he deceives her in such a way and that he continues to try to deceive everyone else from that point forward, including Jesus. These were the temptations that Satan gave to Jesus. It's the, the pride of life, excuse me, it's the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, which we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. You see, the serpent came up to Eve and he says, look at the fruit. Look at that. Isn't it pleasing to the eye? And is, doesn't it look good? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat that fruit? Did he really say that you shouldn't even touch it? Oh, no, no. God said that we can eat of any fruit. Oh, as a matter of fact, the way Satan framed it was like this. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of any fruit in the garden? Our first mistake is when we go into a conversation with the devil. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of none of that fruit? You know, here's one for our modern day today. Did God really say you shouldn't have any sex? Or did God really say that you should have no money? Did he say all money was evil? Or did God really say that, you know, you really shouldn't be eating that kind of food? Or you shouldn't be doing that kind of activity? Well, God never really said that. See, God created sex for marriage inside of the marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And he comes and he distorts it. They just don't want you to have fun. Beloved, it is just a beautiful, beautiful picture of marriage when you have a husband and a wife having that knowledge and that understanding of one another. Money is not evil in itself. Did God really say you shouldn't have any money? You should be poor, give it all to the church? Did God really say that? No, he didn't say that. He said that money is the root of all evil. And I hear people, you know, misquote that all the time. Money is the root. Not the root. Money is not evil in itself, but it begins there. Did God really say that, you know, and you go on and on. And so he came to Eve and said, did God really say you shouldn't have any other fruit? Oh, no, no, no. Eve says, yeah, we can have any fruit except for this one. We're not supposed to eat it or touch it. That's the second thing. Second example. Second thing was that she added to scripture. God never said you couldn't touch it, which you shouldn't anyways. But God said, just don't eat it. Stay away from it. And what do we do when they tell us, don't touch that? Really? Why? What's going to happen? <laughs> what do we do? You know, 
And then she saw that it was good. It was pleasing. And then the serpent said to her, you know, the reason God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit is because he knows that the moment that you eat of it, you will know the difference between good and evil. You will be just like God. Well, I want to be God. I want to run my own life. I want to do what I want to do. It's my life. I can do whatever I want with it, can I? You see, that attitude proclaims you as God. When you set yourself on the throne where God's supposed to be, I make my own decisions. I do what I want to do. And there are various doctrines and teachings that, yes, you can have it all. You can have it all. You can have it all. As a matter of fact, some of the teachings that are out there are the exact same temptations that they gave Jesus Christ. Look, you can have it. Wealth, health, everything, everything I give to you. I give it all to you, all of it, if you just serve me. If you just serve me. Beloved, we have to be careful because what John is telling us here, what Paul has been telling us, he says, you know, we have to look at the scriptures. We have to look at what the word of God says. And God gave us tests. He gave us a command. He gave us a, a, a blueprint on how to do this in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 1. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Let's go ahead and read that, first of all, and then we'll go ahead and dive into it. Because as we were looking at... Philippians 3, 18 and 19. As we were looking at that, we saw a, a picture here of what Paul is trying to get across. Be careful. Y you know, you just got to be careful. Watch out. You'll know them by their fruits. And in John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 and, uh, through 6, it says this. No, not that. <laughs> close to it, Mio. Very close to it. <laughs> okay, he says. Verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out uh, into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, from, is not from God, that is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in, in the world already. Excuse me. Little children... You are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this portion of scripture that was given to us. And John penned it over 2,000 years ago, so that we can have it right here in our hands. And I thank you for the men that have gone before us to give us the same example and, and to show us how to work and, and how to walk through this portion of Scripture in our own lives. So I pray, Father, that you just lead us this morning in all things, in testing the spirits. I thank you, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody says, in his book, Strange Fire by John MacArthur, he outlines Jonathan Edwards' guidelines for testing the spirits. Jonathan Edwards was the uh, part of the Great Awakening that some of you might have heard of. I think a lot of people have lost the understanding of the Great Awakening. But it was back in the 1730s. The 1730s and 1740s by two main preachers, uh, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, and a few other ones as well. But these are the two notable ones. And, and these men were just men of God, of prayer, and of preaching the, the gospel message. And uh, in uh, July of 1741, 
Jonathan Edwards was preaching messages and he was just he was just giving a sermon after sermon on on how how the sinner is going to be cast. You know, you can you're supposed to you've heard that that sermon or that topic. You know, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Well, Jonathan Edwards says it's the sinner that's going to be sent to hell right along with the sin. And you've got to repent. You've got to repent. You've got to repent. And as he was preaching the gospel message, as people were coming before God, the message was so hard and it was so cut to the heart that people started to fall to the ground. They started to cry out loud. They started to, the woe is me, what do I do? And scream and shriek and, and yell out. And Jonathan Edwards says, you know, this, this is a work of God. And then his famous message that came back a few weeks later was uh, out of, in July of 1741, was sinners in the hands of an angry God. And this message just rocked the world, and it's been written down, and we've read it, and we've discussed it a few in classes, and, and it was just a powerful message. And the message, again, where people were just falling and fainting and whoa, and you know, everything else was going on, and it was kind of like almost a, like if you were in a Pentecostal movement or a church, but this is way before the Pentecostal movement started. Pentecostalism didn't start until about 19, 1901, and the Sousa Street Revival is when it started, and a little bit before that in Kansas by a guy named... Uh, Praham, Charles Praham. But anyways, that's when the, you know, Pentecostalism was actually born in, in, the, in, in the United States and across the world. But what, what took place and what made this very significant is that the people that were falling and crying and repented and broken and, and they ch- their lives have changed. They dropped everything and they dropped the alcohol. They dropped all the womanizing. They dropped all the illegal gambling. Everything that they were doing, they just, and they focused on Jesus Christ and their, their whole lives were changed. Families were reunited. It was just a revival in a sense that took place within the church and it just spread out throughout the United States. And it was a movement of the Spirit in such a way that had never been seen before. The problem was, is there were a lot of naysayers, a lot of critics, a lot of people were saying, yeah, this is emotionalism. It's too way out there, you know. It's not about emotion, it's about the Word of God. And, and Jonathan Edwards says, you're right, it's not about emotion. It shouldn't be about emotion, but something's happening here. People are genuinely repenting. They're genuinely going to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one that's being focused on. And, and so what took place was after that, Jonathan Edwards says, you know, I, I need to do something, at least to try to figure out, okay, what's really going on here? How is this all happening together? See, Jonathan Edwards, he contended that a true work of the Holy Spirit can only be measured on the basis of biblical criteria. Emotional experience may be powerful, but they are no proof that God is truly at work. He said, enthusiasm often spread even when evangelists proclaimed false doctrines. And then he goes on to conclude, and Satan could simulate true awakenings. And so Jonathan Edwards says, you know, this is not something that I just want to let go. And and if it's happening, I want to know why it's happening. And I want to know how it's happening. And I want to know how it's all taking place. So what Jonathan Edwards did is he went to the book of first, he went to the Bible found in first John chapter four. And he says, this is how you test the spirits. As a matter of fact, John says himself in verse one, beloved, this is a command. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets had gone out into the world. And that brings us to our lesson this morning. Many false prophets, he says. A lot of people have gone out, and this is a command. And we are commanded to test the spirits every single time. Yes, even as you hear the message today, test it. We are to be like the people in Berea that uh, in, in Acts 17, verse 11, it says, Now these Jews, these Jews of Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. We call these brothers the Bereans. 
There was a bookstore named after them because it was a bookstore that was focused on the Word of God. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so that's what these Bereans did. Now remember, back then they didn't have Bibles in their hands. They had a scroll that was in the synagogue, and that's where they all went. And what is it? Paul is saying that the Christ must be crucified. Paul is saying that he was to be tortured. Paul is saying that he was disfigured. Where does it say that in the Bible? Well, it says in Isaiah 53. Oh, okay, I see that. And they went, and they found, and they saw Jesus Christ in the Old Testament going through the Scriptures. And they were noble, and they were diligent, and they just wanted to see for themselves. Beloved, I'm hoping and I'm praying that in the preaching and the teaching that I'm giving you, that you understand that it's not just my word. You take it home. I give you outlines so that you can check it and test it and look at it. Test the spirits. I challenge you. Test the spirits every single time. And so there's a reason for this testing, as I said. For much such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ within the church. Mind you, within the church. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. One of the biggest, biggest fallacies that people have about Satan. You know, you hear Satan, you hear the devil, you know, they, they, the very first thing that comes up are demons, fangs, claws, red, tail, you know, pitchfork, maybe not you, but some people, you know, they, man, I, I you know, this, this devil is ugly. It's, it's, he wants to kill me. And, and most believe that, de- that the devil is going to come at you head on, which he does. He does come at you head on, but he doesn't come at you in those ways. He doesn't come at you in such a way where it's going to, you know, scare you away. I, I've seen people, I've heard people that say, oh, I saw the devil. What did you do? I prayed. Well, Satan doesn't want you to pray. Say, so, you know, what did you do? when you, I, I heard it and I, saw, I ran. Satan doesn't want you to run. If you're going to run, he wants you to run to him. So what the enemy does, he comes to us in a very, as Paul says here, an angel of light. He disguises himself as something beautiful. Now, I don't know how beautiful the serpent was, during the time of Adam and Eve, but apparently it was able to talk. And apparently it must have had legs because after that, God put it on his belly. So whatever condition this serpent was, it came to Eve and introduced himself to her and says, hey, and he began a dialogue. He didn't, she didn't run. And that's how Satan comes up to you. If Satan were to come up to you and he were to tell you, give me your heart. I want your heart because what I want to do is I want to just yank it out of your chest. I want to be able to squeeze it and beat it up and chew it up and spit it out and toss it on the ground. And I want to stomp on your chest, on your heart as much as possible. I want your heart to go to an eternal hell. That's where I want your heart to be. Give it to me. And then after I'm done with you, I'm coming after your children. Now, how many of you would actually follow that? How many? Well, you know, believe it or not, there's some people that would. But you would not follow it, but that's exactly what he does. No, he comes to you and says, did, did God really say that? Is that really in the Bible? Is that really what it says? It doesn't say that, does it? No, no. As a matter of fact, it says something else, that God is going to bless you with everything. You're going to get whatever you want. Just, just go. You know, if you just serve me, I'm, I'm sorry, if you just serve him, I will give you everything you want. It's all mine anyways. He told Jesus that. 
And he says, you know what? Depart from me, Satan. He said, we must worship God. Wor- worship him and him alone. No one else. See, when the enemy comes to us, whether in a suit, whether as a sheep, as a, as a wolf in sheep's clothing, when he comes to us, he comes to us in very subtle ways. And little by little, he chips. He has all eternity. He has all experience. He has all knowledge. Not, well, not all knowledge, but he has enough knowledge to know what it is that you like and what it is that you don't like. He knows what makes you tick, and he knows what ticks you off. And he feeds you, and he leads you, and he little by little, till finally you're going like this, and little by little you're way out here. One, two, three years later, you're just you're not you're no longer on the foot on the path. And that was the very first thing Jesus said when people asked him, "Tell us, what are the signs? What are the things that are going to happen before you come back?" As I said last week, I have a lot of people tell me stuff like, well, you know, when they hear about wars, is Jesus coming back? Does this mean that Jesus Christ is coming back? Or we hear about pestilences and and diseases like the COVID. Does this mean that Jesus is coming back? It's the end of the world. When we hear about earthquakes, volcanoes, and all kinds of things that are going on, does this mean that the world is coming to an end? The very first thing Jesus says, he says, do not be deceived. That That was his first mark. Do not be deceived because there will be many apostles and prophets coming in my name. There'll be many Christs that are coming in my name. Do not be deceived. And these guys are going to be so good, he says in verse 26. And these guys are going to be so good that they will be able to deceive even the elect if it was possible. That's how good these guys are going to be. And so when Paul says, beware of these guys. This is not the first time he talks about this. This is not the first time that we're, we're talking about this. Again, in Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Guidelines on how to test the Spirit. Number one, in John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. The very first test guideline is the Holy Spirit always exalts exalts Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit always exalts Jesus Christ, lifts him up, focuses on him. The Holy Spirit always brings the attention to Jesus Christ. It's always Christ, Jesus Christ, and nothing else but Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't bring attention to himself. He doesn't bring attention to the pastor. He doesn't bring attention to the church. He doesn't bring attention to the denomination. He doesn't bring attention to one man. The Holy Spirit always, always, always points to Jesus. Always. And why is that? Why is that? Why is it that it's only Jesus Christ? Well, as a matter of fact, in John chapter 15, verse 26, he says this. He's getting ready to be crucified. He's in the upper room. They just had their dinner. They had the, what they call the Passover meal. That night, he's going to be arrested. The very next morning, he's going to be crucified. And that evening, he's going to be buried. And then he's going to be in the tomb on Friday, Saturday, and on Sunday morning, he will resurrect the first day of the week. But that night, he says, I'm not going to leave you guys alone. They didn't understand it. I'm not going to leave you guys as orphans. I'm going to send you a helper. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, what is his responsibility, what the Holy Spirit's going to do? He will bear witness about me. That is his number one goal. That is his priority, to bear witness about what Jesus Christ is going to endure. The Holy Spirit is the point to people, the true spirit. If you were to do a Google search 
and ask, and I've done this already, and ask. This is the second time I've done it, as a matter of fact. And you would ask, how many religions are there in the world? The first time I did that, there were 4,500 or so. This last time I, heard, I read that there was over 10,000 religions in the world. So how am I supposed to discern all these different religions? How am I supposed to focus? Okay, does that one, does that one? How am I supposed to do this? Is this one right? Is that one right? Is that one right? And the, the one thing that you need to know, number one, first of all, the Bible says, you know how many religions are in the Bible? Two. There's the wide road that leads to destruction and everything else, and it's easy, and it goes that way, and there is one narrow gate. There are goats and there are sheep. The goats to the left to everlasting destruction, and there are sheep. We don't entertain goats, okay? We feed the sheep. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people have gotten upset with me, because I don't entertain uh, goats. And, and it's okay, you know, we, we want to feed the sheep. Jesus asked John at the very end, do you love me? John, uh, Peter says, yeah, I do. So we'll feed my sheep. Okay. He didn't say feed the goats. He said feed the sheep. Do you really love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you really, really love you? I, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Feed them. Lead them and feed them. And when you understand that the Father has sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, and he sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an immovable, it's not the great force of the universe. The Holy Spirit is a person. And uh, when we go through the, the fundamentals of faith, we, we understand, we go through the doctrine of Jesus Christ, God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And we explain that to you and how that all works together. But his responsibility is to bring glory and to witness about Jesus Christ. Uh, John 16, 13. Well, first of all, before you go there, in 2 Peter 1, in 2 Peter 1.21, we got to understand that it's the Holy Spirit that put this word together. Peter says this, For no prophecy was ever proclaimed by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It was men that the Holy Spirit himself used to write the word of God. He took every person that he was going to use to write and complete God's word. As a matter of fact, it says here, And when he comes... The, the, the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. How? Well, through the reading of His Word. In John 16, 13, He says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He doesn't speak on His own authority. He doesn't just make up stuff. He doesn't just say, well, this is how you should worship, or this is how you should do this. He doesn't just go along and, and make you feel good. You, you don't get no new revelation. You don't get nothing else because it's already written down. That's another thing that I, I believe a lot of people have uh, with, with this type of teaching is that I believe that this is all we need. This is what's called a closed canon. It is shut, and, and we have not yet begun to dig into the depths of God's Word. I mean, there is so much in this word that it takes us a lifetime just to go through it. It has been stated that a theologian, he'll dive into God's word and he'll, he won't even reach the bottom. But it's shallow enough for a child to come up and drink from its edges. That's how profound God's word is. And yet you have people telling you, well, I've got another revelation. I've got something new. I've got something else. I've got some, you know, something else that God said. Two things. Number one, if it agrees with God's word, I don't need it. But if it disagrees with God's word, I don't want it. 
You know, people have said, no, no, this is from God. This is authentic. I, you know, he gave it to me and I read it and I heard it and I saw it and he impressed it upon my heart. And I really believe, I don't care what you believe. What does the word of God say? I really feel, I don't care what you feel. What does the word of God say? Because if God really spoke to you and gave you a new vision, a new revelation, then maybe we should write it down and we should add it to the back of the Bible right back here. There's plenty of empty spaces back here. We could make this book a little bit bigger. Oh, wait a minute. It says right here, whatever, do not add to this word, do not take away. Cool. We have a problem then because I ain't adding any more to this word, this word that God has given us. The closed revelation, beloved, it's very beneficial to you. It helps you to focus on the ministry of Jesus Christ. It helps you to focus on the ministry of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 5, verse 30 and 32, the God of our Father raised Jesus when you killed him by hanging him on a tree. Paul is telling, Peter is telling the people. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. Now, why would the Holy Spirit send you somewhere else? The reason why it is so important to understand that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not for him, on him, about him. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is about Jesus Christ because he is the one that paid for your sins. He is the one that took care of my sin problem. Anytime I am diverted from that, anytime that I'm taken away from that, anytime that 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 becomes, you know, in the background, it's not focused on, I lose the focus of of the finished work of Christ. The Spirit, when you test it, should point you to Jesus. Exalt Jesus Christ every single time. He comes from God. It's about Jesus. It's about Him. It's about what He's done. You've probably heard this before, and I don't know if you've actually tested this, but if you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, all the way through, it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. It tells a complete story about Jesus. Though it doesn't use His name, it says the Messiah, the Christ, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus. It, it tells a complete story about Him about who he is. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does, because there's two spirits. There's either the Holy Spirit or there's the spirit of the Antichrist. And, and it's either one or the other. The second thing the Holy Spirit does is that the Holy Spirit opposes the world. The Holy Spirit opposes the world. This fame and to claim and this, you know, you can get whatever you want and, you know, it's, it's worldly. Now, does that mean God doesn't want you to have anything? No. That's the first thing Satan's going to tell you. Well, what about my job? What about the things that I have? I got to be in the world. And, but yes, you got to be in the world, but you should not be a part of the world. Little children, he says in verses 4 and 5, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. 20 reasons I can give you as to why not to focus in the world. The first one is 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world. I mean, that should be sufficient. God's already told us, do not love the world. Then he goes on to say, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did you get that? If you love the world, that means you don't love God. I mean, you don't have the love of the Father. You got the love of the world. And the prince of this world is the Antichrist. But the prince of heaven, see, because our kingdom is not of this world. This is why we wrote that bumper sticker and put it on our back and our bumper stickers. Not of this world. We're just passing through. And for some people, that's the only way they live is with the bumper sticker theology. 
Uh, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I mentioned to you last week, we talked about Adam and Eve. We talked about the temptations of Jesus, that you can almost, you can almost get every single temptation and put it under one of these three categories. Get last week's message. Matthew 16, 26 says this. There's another reason why you shouldn't love the world. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Why love the world? Why even go for it? Why even be driven to it? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You gain the world. You work in the world. You love the world. You grab the world and you take it as as best you can. Seize the day is what you're told. Do the best that you can. Conquer the world. Conquer your fears. That's what you need to do. And you know what? God will bless you as you're doing that. And Jesus says, which one of us? What kind of profit is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? A third reason, James says in verses 4 and 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Enmity, I'm sorry, enmity. Enmity is a deep-seated hatred. If you love the world, you, your, your heart is so seared and against God. Some of you say, no, no, I can love God and I can love the world at the same time. You cannot serve both. You cannot serve mammon, and you cannot serve God. Mammon was a god, and mammon was what we call money. And they they translated that into money, but mammon was a a type of god that gave you all the worldly pleasures. And Jesus says, you cannot serve mammon and God at the same time. Those two don't go together. It's like oil and water. You're either serving one or the other. There's only two. There's only two. And friendship, friendship. And this is not even loving the world. This is just friendship with the world is enmity. It's a deep-seated hatred. You hate God so much, you want to be friends with the world. And you're, you might not say it. You might not believe it because well, Satan is telling you, no, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not okay. It's not that bad. See, these people are okay. You know, you know, maybe they might go off a little bit. And there are some Christians that like to live vicariously through the lives of other people. Ooh, you know, what you do? And what happened next? And what, what, you know, what's going on? And, and, and what, what, what did he do? Or what did she do? You know, and they live vicariously. And Satan is saying, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry about it. Because you can be friends with the world. See, it's just don't be a part of the world. Well, James is telling us, no. When you're friends with the world, basically you're saying that you have this deep-seated hatred, this enmity toward God. A few more reasons. Because the Holy Spirit has forbidden us, because the gain of it is the loss of our soul because friendship is hatred because it is it did not know Christ in John chapter 1 verse 10 Jesus came into his own and the world did not know him uh, because it, it, it hates Christ because Christ did not pray for the world in John chapter 17 as he's praying for the disciples Jesus says I'm not praying for the whole world I'm just praying for those that are ours and Jesus did not pray for them uh, because uh, it will not receive the Spirit because Satan is the prince of this world, because Christ's kingdom is not of this world, because the wisdom of this world is foolishness, because the wisdom of this world is ignorance, because Christ does not belong in it, because it is condemned. This world is condemned, beloved. I know that there's a big push out there to go green, and we're trying to save the planet. You know, we have to be, and I've heard this quote before many times before from Christians, we have to be good stewards of the planet. Like if that's, oh, okay, that's, that's good. Where would you find that at? Well, it's in the Bible, but where? Where does it say that we must be good stewards of the planet? Because I can show you many places in the Bible where it says this planet will be destroyed. This planet is not our home. 
This nobody can destroy this planet but God. And he's got a plan already set in place. I can show you where it says that in the end of the book. And in the end of the book, we all win. (laughs) Beloved, over and over again. Number three, why we should why the Holy Spirit opposes the world. He he exalts Christ. He opposes the world to the Holy Spirit. And, and, And the preacher and the prophet or the person proclaiming this needs to point people to Jesus. Needs to point people away from the world. And number three, the Holy Spirit focuses on the truth of the scriptures. What I did last week is I kind of combined two points together, this one and the the truth and scriptures. But here's what he says in verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. When Jonathan Edwards did this evaluation, and he preached the sermon. And I, I don't know exactly, I haven't read the sermon that, you know, how to distinguish the spirits. I haven't heard it, but I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure that as he proclaimed it, he says, look, let's test what's going on over here, and let's test what the Bible says. Are we pointing people to Jesus? Yes, okay, we're pointing people to Jesus. Are, are we opposing the world? You, you know, we don't want anything to do with the world. Are, are we focused on the Bible? Or are we focused on what other people are saying? Are we focused on what others are trying to bring in? Every time someone has a new revelation, it started a cult. Joseph Smith heard from an angel, Moroni, and he was underneath a tree, and the angel came to him, gave him this book that he couldn't decipher. What in the world is this? And apparently this angel gave him some reading glasses to be, oh, that's what it says. And then he translated it, and then at that point, the angel took off, took the book, took the glasses, had no evidence. He says, this is what the angel Moroni told me. Really? All right, well, let's go that way. Eddie Baker, uh, Mary Betty, Eddie Baker, another one, uh, Christian Science. You know, she she got a new revelation. Uh, you know, Judge, what's his name uh, from the Jehovah's Witnesses, got a new revelation from God. Every every time you have a cult rise up, you get a new revelation, and people follow that because it sounds good, it's it's pleasing to the eye, it's desirable for the flesh, and it's very prideful. You'll see some of these people that are very prideful in what they have and what they've done. And because of God is blessing my life, he can bless yours too. For $59.99, I can help you get there if you'd like. <laughs> you know, and, and no doubt God blesses some people. Definitely he does. I know he does. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in my own life. But it wasn't what I was searching for. It's not what I was looking for. And no doubt, you know, that God, God has taught me how to do with, with less. He has taken away a lot of stuff that I thought I needed. And no doubt, you know, that, that God has, has done this in your life as well. But do not mistake the things that you have of this world as God's blessings. Yes, they may be. But God's blessing is for you and for other people. You need to be a channel of His grace. See, see the blessings that God gives you, either they're material or money or wealth or whatever the case is, you know, you can't pile it up. You can't pile it up and save it for a rainy day. The things of this world, they're kind of like manure. You know, you pile it up, it stinks. But if you spread it around, it grows and and causes other things to grow. See, God blessed you so you can bless others. The Holy Spirit focuses on the scripture of truth. 2 Peter 1.20, knowing first of all, we read this a little while ago. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for scripture, for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of God's scripture, all of God's word is breathed out by him. It is the spirit 
the breath of God, the Holy Spirit that has written and put this down together. In 2 Peter 3.16, it says, As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of all these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. What Peter is talking about, he's talking about the Apostle Paul. He says, yeah, Paul writes some pretty hard stuff. And, you know, sometimes they're, they're, it's kind of hard to understand. You know, and there are things that, you know, just, just, how does this work out? Well, the things that you cannot understand, some people take that and they twist it. Well, this is what it means. Well, I believe that this is what it means. And this is how it's meant to me. You know, once again, I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you think it means. You know, how, how, how audacious, how arrogant is it for me to come to you and say, well, you know, this is what the Bible says. But I think this is what God, I think this is what God means. You know, it says what it says. I am not that super pastor that can get into God's mind and, okay, God, what did you actually mean by that? Oh, okay. If it doesn't make sense, if it's not clear, then we just go right over it. We try to make sense of it and somehow, but we go right over to the things that we know do make sense. John 16, 13 through 14, he says this to the Holy Spirit, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare them to you. John says also, the God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the last thing I want to point out to you is in number four, the Holy Spirit produces love for God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. He goes on to say, how can you say you love your brother? You know, if, how can you say you love your brother? You hate your brother, but you love God. That's incongruent. If you love God, then you got to love your brother. You can't say you hate your brother and then you love God, because it goes hand in hand. When the... Leaders in Jesus' day came up to Jesus. They wanted to trick him, find out. And there was an argument. There was always an argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were always arguing about the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And the way you can remember that is, you see, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. It's sad, you see, because uh, they, they had nothing to look forward to. But they were always arguing, and they said, well, this is the greatest law. No, this is the greatest commandment. Well, let's ask Jesus. Maybe he knows. And Jesus says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? Here is the greatest commandment. Moses gave it to you, and I'm going to give it to you again. And it says this, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The problem is, is that in today's culture, people don't even love themselves. They don't love who they are. They want to be something else. They want to be someone else. They're not, they're not content. Again, subtle lies from the enemy that have been going on for years. And has got us to the point where we're at right now. You need to learn how to discern the spirits, how to test the spirits. You look at, what the, you look at the fruit. You will know them by their fruit. And love, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love always rejoices with the truth. 
Unfortunately, those that preach the truth are the ones that are called the hate, hate mongers. The ones that preach the truth that are the ones that are uh, called bigots and whatever you call them, homophobics. The ones that preach the truth of God's word, you know, it's been twisted around and it's going to continue to be so. See, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love will endure and you will endure with love when you love yourself, when you love God, when you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the caption of it. See, when Jonathan Edwards saw this and he, and he gauged it and he used it as a guideline for his messages and he showed it to the people, his professors and everyone else, and they looked at this and said, okay, well, this, this sounds, you know, what was going on? This, you know what? It, what happened was what happened at Pentecost. When people heard the gospel message, they fell down and they cried. They said, what must I do? Genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. There's been many times that we've sang a song. It just has caused a cry, a tear. There's times that people have heard the message, the gospel message, and have been choked up. And says, what do I do? There's been times that, you know, it's the word of God just hits your heart. See, that's the Holy Spirit's responsibility is to convict the world of sin. And if your heart is being convicted, that's the work, the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And there's times that people have cried and they've left here. You know, what do I do? Repent. Repent, because the Holy Spirit is showing you the error of your life, of my life. And repentance is this, that everything that I believed, everything that I thought, everything that I did needs to change. I need to have a new vision, a new will, a new thought, and a new life. And I was going in one direction, now I need to go back in the other direction toward God, toward the cross, because that's where the finished work of salvation is at. Jesus Christ finished it, and there's nothing else that I must do. If the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart, you need to repent. And that's not even a suggestion. That is a commandment. Jesus says, repent. Peter said, repent. John the Baptist said, repent, 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 repent. And that's what we must do according to Scripture. Father in heaven, thank you once again for your word. There's so much that uh, we still don't understand. But I thank you for your word that has given us the ability to, to gauge and to discern and to see. And to see what it is that, uh, that, that is going on in the world around us. Today we leave here with a, a different view of what uh, the church is to be. And the leaders that we look up to and we see. Father, is it leading us to Jesus Christ? Is it taking us, is, is the, the gospel message and the word that is being preached, is it opposing the world? Father, we need to know that we need to focus on the truth. And it's only your word that is true. This is all there is. There cannot be anything else. Because you put this together for us, Holy Spirit. You would not have left anything out. Nothing. It's all relevant. It's sufficient. And we know that the Holy Spirit produces love for you. And for each other. So Lord, help us to use this as a gauge. Every time we listen to a speaker. Every time we attend a church. Where's the focus? And I pray, Lord, that every time that we encounter a group of ministers of people that they are focusing on the cross of Jesus and only the cross of Jesus. Thank you once again, Lord, for your word as we continue on through this day. Pray, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. amen and amen. Thank you. Don't forget, next week we have a membership class. We're going to start at 9 o'clock in the morning. For those of you that I've had a few people ask me about that, we also have the uh, Lord's table next week as well. Okay? So...